set forth in the evangelical church. The author says, however, we need to press beyond that. That's just the foundation. And this will do if God permits. But now, beginning at verse 4, he says something as I've already indicated. It's quite terrifying. He describes people who are in a certain spiritual condition that fall away from the gospel. And about those who fall away, he says it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. So, where the um, Reformed churches have traditionally taught that a man who is once saved is always saved, and that God will preserve him unto the end, those who are not Reformed, those who are Arminian in their outlook on salvation, have often appealed to Hebrews chapter 6 to make the point that that can't be true, because here we have a description of people who are in fact saved, and then they lose their salvation. In fact, not only lose it, but lose it for good. It's not as though, you know, you're saved and you're lost, and maybe you can be saved and you're lost, and it's kind of an up and down. You're in the faith, out of the faith. What Hebrews talks about is a loss of salvation in such a way that it can never be renewed. One can never again be a Christian after that situation. And so now, what are we going to make of such a passage? Do we believe in the assurance of our salvation or, or not? And uh, I have said, I think from the pulpit, uh, certainly in studies before, that um, there's a sense in which the doctrine of once saved, always saved, is the doctrine right out of the pit of hell. It's a very dangerous doctrine, and it's one which I think probably well over 80, 90% of the time I've heard it expounded has been expounded incorrectly. Expounded in such a way as to set people at ease in their Christian faith. And to say, it really makes no difference whether you live a carnal life. God's really going to bless you in a spiritual way anyway. Uh, as long as you profess the saving mercies of Jesus Christ, if you don't live under his lordship, that's all right. In fact, there are some groups of Christians that actually teach that uh, a second work of grace takes place in a person's life after he or she becomes a Christian. The first work of grace is believing that Christ is your Savior. The second work of grace is, is accepting that Christ is your, your Lord. And so what you do is you, uh, you, you say you're sorry for your sins and you believe in Christ, and that means you're forgiven for all the bad things you've done, but you aren't doing those bad things. But then after a while, if God does a second work of grace in your life, you also want to give up doing those sinful things that you once did. You're now going to let Jesus be Lord of your life. He's Savior, now he's going to become Lord. Okay? Now, does this passage give support to the idea that uh, we can be saved and lose our salvation? Does this passage give support to the idea that once you profess salvation, you will always be saved. That it's all right for you to lead a, a carnal life and so forth because, uh, well, people are in and out of the faith. But this passage really takes away the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Well, there have been people who have said that it doesn't and have tried to defend their point of view in ways which I find really unacceptable as a Bible interpreter. And I'm going to spend some time this evening going over ways in which you can read this passage 
to kind of take the sting out of it, to take the terror out of it, so that the warning that is present will not have the same kind of punch as when you originally read it. All right, some would say that the passage is talking about something that is hypothetical. For as touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it is impossible to renew them again. And they read that with the force of a grammatical hypothesis. It's a subjunctive uh, arrangement. If this were to take place, if that were to happen, it would be impossible to renew such people to repentance. If anyone should become apostate who was once a believer in Jesus Christ, you would never be able to renew that person to Christianity. Now this interpretation, you need to notice right away, assumes that the description in verses 4 and 5 is a description of an actual saving experience of the gospel. It grants that these are real Christians, but does not grant that they might really apostatize. It's just hypothetical. It's subjunctive. And if, if perchance, someone who was a Christian became apostate, you'd never be able to renew them to repentance. The implication uh, this interpretation is that that kind of defection from Christianity will never actually take place. Okay, so here you have somebody described as a true Christian, and what the passage says is, and if they fall away, then you can never renew them. Of course, that will never happen. But if it did happen, you have to understand, salvation would be impossible. And in support of that approach to the passage, uh, we find not only certain grammatical things that you don't need to go into the details of, such subjunctions that you use and so forth. But look at verse 9. Who is once saved is always saved, and that God will preserve him unto the end. Those who are not reformed, those who are Arminian in their outlook on salvation, have often appealed to Hebrews chapter 6 to make the point that that can't be true, because here we have a description of people who are in fact saved, and then they lose their salvation. In fact, not only lose it, but lose it for good. It's not as though, you know, you're saved and you're lost, and maybe you can be saved and you're lost, and it's kind of an up and down. You're in the faith, out of the faith. What Hebrews talks about is a loss of salvation in such a way that it can never be renewed. One can never again be a Christian after that situation. And so now, what are we going to make of such a passage? Do we believe in the assurance of our salvation or, or not? And uh, I have said, I think from the pulpit, uh, certainly in studies before, that um, there's a sense in which the doctrine of once saved, always saved, is the doctrine right out of the pit of hell. It's a very dangerous doctrine, and it's one which I think probably well over 80-90% of the time I've heard it expounded has been expounded incorrectly. Expounded in such a way as to set people at ease in their Christian faith. And they say, it really makes no difference whether you live a carnal life. God's really going to bless you in a spiritual way anyway. Uh, as long as you profess the saving mercies of Jesus Christ, if you don't live under his lordship, that's all right. In fact, there are some groups of Christians that actually teach 
that uh, a second work of grace takes place in a person's life after he or she becomes a Christian. The first work of grace is believing that Christ is your Savior. The second work of grace is, is accepting that Christ is your your Lord. And so what you do is you, uh, you, you say you're sorry for your sins and you believe in Christ and that means you're forgiven for all the bad things you've done, but you go on doing those bad things. But then after a while, if God does the second work of grace in your life, you also want to give up doing those sinful things that you once did. You're now going to let Jesus be Lord of your life. He's Savior, now he's going to become Lord. Okay? Now, as this passage gives support to the idea that uh, we can be saved and lose our salvation? Does this passage give support to the idea that once you profess salvation, you will always be saved? That it's all right for you to lead a, a carnal life and so forth because, uh, well, people are in and out of the faith. But this passage really takes away the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Well, there have been people who have said that it doesn't and have tried to defend their point of view in ways which I find really unacceptable as a Bible interpreter. And I'm going to spend some time this evening going over ways in which you can read this passage to kind of take the sting out of it, to take the terror out of it, so that the warning that is present will not have the same kind of punch as when you originally read it. All right, some would say that the passage is talking about something that is hypothetical. For as touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it is impossible to renew them again. And they read that with the force of a grammatical hypothesis, it's a subjunctive uh, arrangement. If this were to take place, if that were to happen, it would be impossible to renew such people to repentance. If anyone should become apostate who was once a believer in Jesus Christ, you would never be able to renew that person to Christianity. Now this interpretation, you need to notice right away, assumes that the description in verses 4 and 5 is a description of an actual saving experience of the gospel. It grants that these are real Christians, but does not grant that they might really apostatize. It's just hypothetical. It's subjunctive. And if, if perchance, someone who was a Christian became apostate, you'd never be able to renew them to repentance. The implication uh, this interpretation is that that kind of defection from Christianity will never actually take place. Okay, so here you have somebody described as a true Christian, and what the passage says is, and if they fall away, then you can never renew them. Of course, that will never happen. But if it did happen, you have to understand, salvation would be impossible. And in support of that approach to the passage, uh, we find not only certain grammatical things that you don't need to go into the details of, such subjunctions that you use and so forth. But look at verse 9. Right after this paragraph, he often says, But beloved, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. 
Here the author says, we know that you're going to be saved. And so this suggests that all he's doing is holding out a, a, a warning, as it were, to frighten them into being better Christians. Because now, you better be very careful about apostatizing. Because if you were to apostatize, if, 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 if you were to apostatize, you would never be able to be renewed. The person in touch way down into this part that doesn't let it happen. If you're a true Christian, that doesn't let it happen. Well, I have real difficulty with this interpretation. It's been a popular one, but in the first place, it doesn't seem to comport with the holiness and inspired character of the New Testament writers to be holding out deceptive warnings like that. You know, to, to be threatening people with things which there's no threat about anyway. That seems to me to be very misleading, to be deceptive, and even more than deceptive, completely incompatible with the somber tone uh, of the entire uh, book. The author is dead serious about something going wrong. He's very worried that it might happen. He is trying to pull them back from the brink of destruction. Now, it just does not fit in to that overall tenor of the book for the author to be saying, now, of course, if you were to apostify, I know you never will, but if you were, of course, it would be impossible to renew you. So his whole point is, if you apostify, and I think some of you are on the brink of doing it, you're going to lose your salvation altogether. It's a very, very strong warning. Not just kind of like using um, boogeyman tactics to scare people when in fact there's no boogeyman at all. That's one way in which the passage could have that implication of losing our salvation removed. Say, well, the author is just being hypothetical. Let me move to a second possibility. Notice that it says in verse 6 about those who fall away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Impossible this interpretation says impossible for man to renew them to repentance. What do we read in Mark 10, verse 27? For with God, all things are possible. And so the passage is stating that it's impossible for man to renew an apostate sinner to repentance. But God can do anything. So our hope would have to be in God if there was apostasy of the sort being described here. And I see some of you kind of frowning and saying, but wait a minute, that isn't what it says. Interestingly, in Mark 10, 27, we have the full qualification written out. With God, all things are possible. But there isn't any such qualification with God, with man type of uh, arrangement in Hebrews 6. It simply says, absolutely, and without qualification, it is impossible. It cannot take place. This is the sort of thing that is beyond the realm of possibility. When someone falls away in the manner spoken of here, they will never be renewed again. A variation of that um, approach that qualifies the word impossible says, this is the third way of taking the passage, says, well, it's impossible as long as they persist in their renunciation. <laughs> I, I think you see the humor in that. That's a truism hardly worthy of being uttered, right? 
I mean, that's just too trivial to be worth writing down. As long as you persist in repentance, it's impossible for you to repent. Moreover, if you look at it, you'll notice that the word um, crucify, which actually in Greek is the present participle, crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh, appears to be a causal uh, expression. The reason why it's impossible, the cause for that impossibility, if you will, the reason for that impossibility, is that they are crucifying the Son of God afresh if they were to be renewed to repentance. And if that is a causal explanation of this, then of course it, has, it really doesn't fit in to the idea that it's impossible as long as you persist in renunciation because, of course, that's causing the Son of God to be crucified again. That doesn't fit. You'd have to say, as long as you are crucifying the Son of God, you can't be renewed. But you wouldn't say you can't be renewed because you, as a matter of fact, have caused him to be crucified again. So here we have three interpretations all of which are hoping to salvage the once-saved, always-saved doctrine, but they don't seem to be very helpful. Fourth one also centers on this word impossible and interprets it to mean very difficult. When biblical interpreters go bad, they usually go very bad. It's, what they're saying is, it's going to be really hard to renew you to repentance if you do this sort of thing. So be careful. The problem is that isn't what the word means. The word means it cannot happen. It's impossible to do so. Another possibility is that what's uh, impossible is not so much repentance in the inward sense and a right relationship with God being restored, but what's impossible is to be baptized again. And so many of the church fathers said, when you fall from grace, you need to understand you cannot be baptized again. Now, that might not seem a very interesting or helpful a comment to make for us today, but if you remember in the early church that there was a feeling among some church fathers that sins committed prior to baptism could be forgiven in baptism. Sins committed after baptism could not be forgiven except through penance, purgatory, or what have you. And therefore, it would be a natural thing for someone who is backslidden from the faith, as it were, to want to be baptized again, rather than to go through purgatory or penance or what have you. And what this passage is doing, therefore, is telling you, no, sorry, you only get baptized once, you can't be baptized a second time. The only difficulty is what this is talking about is not baptism doesn't say that it's impossible to be baptized. It says it's impossible to be renewed under repentance again. And then I'm going to offer one last interpretation that um, I think is one of the lowest on the list of credibility. And that's that what's being dealt with here is really just the irremissibility of a particular sin. Not of an attitude of apostasy, but of one particular sin that may be especially offensive to God. And um, one church father said that sin was the sin of adultery. And so I had quite a, a hang-up about sexual offenses and said, you know, Christians can commit all these other kinds of sins, but if you commit adultery, that will never be committed. Uh, if anyone can find that in the text, you'll have to help me see it. I, 
Well, that is really imposing something on what the, the words actually say. Uh, and besides, we know from the Bible elsewhere that isn't true at all. What is Psalm 51 all about? Anybody remember Psalm? Exactly. David's penitential prayer for committing adultery and virtual murder. And so it's obvious that a person can be removed to repentance who commits adultery. That's not the unforgivable sin. Um, I mean, this might be a nice place for a little homiletical discussion of how the Christian church sometimes treats sexual sin as unforgivable. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. And that isn't what this passage is all about. Now, this passage is talking not about a particular action or transgression. It's really talking about a disposition of heart. It's talking about a general attitude that utterly repudiates the grace of God. Okay? So now you're saying, Pastor, what are we going to make of this passage? Of all those ways of weaseling out of the terrifying tones, uh, are not legitimate, then how are we going to preserve the Reformed doctrine of the perseverance and preservation of the saints? Hmm. Well, what do all of the interpretations that I have uh, given to you this evening presuppose about the people being described? That they were truly saved. Exactly. Now, I want to suggest that the difficulty arises when we interpret the passage as saying, here's someone that God has regenerated, here's someone who is truly saved, and then comes into a situation of not being truly saved. They have fallen away. And we read that as falling away from the grace of God. Which grace of God has really changed their lives and saved them? And I think that's the mistake that's being made here, because the description that is given is one that does not necessitate saying that people are actually, internally, right with God and saved. So what you have here is a description of people who have come into a position of tremendous spiritual benefit and privilege and then fall away from that. And so I'm going to suggest that what the Bible teaches us is that once you're truly saved, you are always saved. But making profession of salvation is not the same as being saved. I'm going too fast. You understand this? To be truly saved, you cannot be lost. But to make profession of salvation is not necessarily to be truly saved. There are those who undergo certain experiences of benefit and blessing in the Christian church which leaves them inexcusable when they repudiate the Son of God. Yeah, in fact, um, I have a, a whole description of apostasy that I want to go through in uh, my concluding example of Judas. I think it's beautiful. Don't be sorry. I'm, that, I think that's great that you're anticipating where I'm going. Because we have people according to this text, which appear to all outward appearances to be Christians. Let's read what it says about them. Um, for as touching those who were, and there are six things said now, touching those who were once enlightened. These are people who are not completely in the dark about the gospel. There is some work of enlightenment that has taken place. They might understand. And let me begin right there by giving you... Uh, 
an example. There are people, because they socially spend time in the Christian church, who know a great deal of Christian doctrine. We might call it head knowledge or the ability to write answers down on a piece of paper, not really heart knowledge. But the fact is, they know how to discuss doctrine. There are people who have read books of theology. And they know what Karl Barth says. And they know what Charles Hodge says. They know what some of the theological debates are. They know what separates Presbyterians from Methodists and Baptists from Lutherans and things like that. They know a great deal of theology. They know, in that sense, a great deal about God, but they don't know God. J.I. Packer puts it that way. You may recall the beginning of his book, Knowing God. There are people who know a great deal about God who still do not know God. There's a difference between them. Of course, you can't know God without knowing about him, but you can know about him without actually knowing him. And I think we understand this in our ordinary experience. I know a great deal about Ronald Reagan. But I wouldn't say to somebody, you know, I know Ronald Reagan. You know, we talk daily. That isn't true. I may know his shoe size. I may know what his favorite dinner is. I may know what his most affectionate name for his wife is. I may know a lot about him and still not know him personally. And this passage tells us there are some people who have been enlightened. Now, the re I'll tell you why I think this passage has been so uh, difficult for interpreters through the ages. And that's that the author is writing in a way which is almost purposely ambiguous. The author is saying things which could describe a believer. Because, you know, believers are enlightened too, aren't they? The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit enlightens us so we understand the Word of God. But what I'm getting at is the passage could describe a believer, but it need not describe a believer, because there's a sense in which those who are in the Christian community are also enlightened. Another illustration that comes to my mind, uh, sadly, is that of uh, covenant children who grow up, who don't, who don't make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You can sometimes ask these children in their teenage years and older um, catechism questions, and they'll give you the right answer. They'll be able to explain to you the doctrine of predestination. They might even understand the differences between limited atonement and uh, unlimited atonement and certain subtleties of theology. And yet they've never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They've never stood up before men and said, yes, I love the Savior and I'm following him all my life. It is possible to be enlightened, therefore, without the enlightenment indicating an internal renovation or change. Okay, for it's touching those who were once enlightened, and now we secondly read of them, that they have tasted of the heavenly gift. I wrote a term paper once uh, when I was in college on this passage in which I thought the turning point of the passage rested on this word tasted. I've now decided that I was wrong in that regard. I think the, the bottom line, the teaching or interpretation I gave was correct, but I don't think you can support it by saying, well, if you notice it says here that they tasted of the heavenly gift, the implication being just um, had a little bit of a, an experience of it. They didn't really uh, digest it, as it were. They didn't really take it under themselves, but they just had kind of an outward sampling of the heavenly gift. Well, the word tasted, as I studied it more now, um, really does not connote just a limited experience of something. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus tasted of death. 
Well, I mean, that doesn't mean that he just kind of came right up to the edge of death and had a little experience of death. I mean, facing death there meant it was his experience to die. The Bible tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, that doesn't mean take a sampler approach to the Lord, you know, just to taste here and taste there. But tasting there obviously means to take it into yourself in a, in a full and vigorous way. So, um, I wouldn't encourage you to interpret the passage as meaning that uh, they just had a limited experience of something because the word tasted is used. Although I am going to say, in the end, it is just a limited experience. The tasting here of the heavenly gift refers to having a beneficial experience of the blessings of the covenantal community. God from heaven has given gifts to his church. He has blessed his church. And the people being described here are within the sphere of the beneficiaries of that gift. And again, I have to ask you to stop and think. Is it conceivable to you that someone who is not really born again, but for a period of time lives within the sphere of the Christian church, makes profession of faith, goes to Bible study, prayer meetings, regularly you know, at church, socials, and so forth, is it conceivable to you that that person would enjoy heavenly benefits? Well, sure. And I wouldn't want that this take place, but I think it's true that if everyone in Southern California went to church, we'd be better off. I think everyone who went to church would be happier. Even though the people going to church are not Christians. That it's, in a sense, there's a greater blessing to being a hypocrite who goes to church than being a person who openly defies the word of God and stays on to church. Um, again, we're speaking unrealistically. That's not going to happen. Everyone comes. But um, I think it's obvious that there are certain non-saving benefits to being a member of the Christian community. You taste of the heavenly gift. If nothing else, it is a, it is a great encouragement to hypocrites. Again, you have to remember it's so hard to describe these people because as long as I call them hypocrites, then you see them in a certain way. But in terms of your experience with such people, they don't appear to be hypocrites at the time. But to such people, let's say they see a person going through a time of suffering with great faith in God. You see support and prayer from the Christian community. Do you not think that's a benefit to them? That that doesn't lift their spirits and give them hope and encouragement? Well, it certainly does. There is a sense in which they taste of the benefits of God's heavenly gifts by being there. Next, they're made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, if anyone were to fault my interpretation, if I were counseling them to debate against my position, I'd say, this is where you want to attack it. This might be the weakest link right here. How can they be partakers of the Holy Spirit and not really be saved? Come on now. If they're partakers of the Holy Spirit, they're regenerated, aren't they? Well, that would be a tempting option, but it's not really true. If you read the New Testament, you'll find that the Holy Spirit does a number of different kinds of work. And not all of them are saving work. The Bible teaches us the Holy Spirit restrains the sin of unbelievers. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit regenerates unbelievers. And so, although I don't think that's what's being referred to here, mind you, but I just want to point out that there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit works in a non-saving way in people. Well, what kind of uh, partaking of the Holy Spirit is referred to here? My own opinion is that this 
refers to their experiencing the charismatic gifts of the early church. They are partakers of the Holy Spirit in that they have benefited from the distribution of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church, as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us. Paul says that the Spirit gives all the diversity of gifts, some of which are the charismatic gifts, tongues, prophecy, healing, and so forth, these people have partaken in that. They have, in the same sense they've enjoyed the heavenly gift and they've enjoyed enlightenment, they also are in the sphere of the outward influence of the Holy Spirit because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the community of which they are members. They tasted the good word of God. That is, they tasted the gospel, the good word of God, the good news. They tasted that. They've heard it. They've, uh, they maybe even have wept for joy that Jesus died for sinners. And they tasted the powers of the age to come. Probably a reference to the miracles performed by the apostles in the early church. Uh, the kingdom of God has come and it's come in power and they've been there to see that. They've, they've been around when um, miracles have been performed, when there's been a mighty demonstration of the Spirit's work. And uh, so as members of the Christian community, they are partakers in the heavenly gifts, partakers in the Holy Spirit. They have experienced a great deal of what God has done for his people in the church. And they even have said that they're sorry for their sins. Because it speaks of renewing them unto repentance. So the final thing we want to say about these people is they've joined the church. They have repented of their sins. Or, well, if you have to say they have professed to repent of their sins. Every one of these six descriptions, I suggest, therefore, is a description of someone who is in the Christian community, is a member of the church, and is a beneficiary of the blessings of the church, and is enlightened, has no reason, uh, because of ignorance, uh, to deny the truth of these things, has seen the power of the truth of the gospel at work, and yet the Bible says they fall away. About these people, verse 6, verse six says, and then they fell away. It is impossible to turn tape over at this time. What the New Testament says elsewhere about apostasy, and if we'll understand better exactly how this does take place, an apostate is someone who once professed obedience to Christ, but now openly repudiates them. The apostate was once identified with the people of God, and because of that identification came within the sphere of divine blessings. God has demonstrated the truth of his word. God has demonstrated the power of the gospel. God has uh, given blessings, and maybe outward and social, but nevertheless has given blessings uh, that this person has uh, participated in, and yet they turn against it. Turn to 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17. First John 5, the 16th verse. If any man see his brother sinning a sin not unto death, he shall ask, and God will give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, 
Not concerning this do I say he should make request. All unrighteousness is sin, but there is a sin not unto death. It's kind of a cryptic way of speaking. It's kind of John's style of writing. He kind of repeats himself and puts it different ways. But the upshot is, there is such a thing as a sin unto death. Just about any other sin or unrighteousness you might um, ask repentance for, and you could be forgiven. But there is a sin that is going to be unalterably unto death. And notice that the sin is committed by someone who is a brother. Verse 16, if any man see his brother sinning a sin not unto death, and then it goes on to state that there is a sin unto death. So John recognizes that some who are within the sphere of the Christian community, those who are members of the Christian church and therefore called brothers, might commit a sin which is unto death, that has as its outcome the everlasting perdition. Turn now to Mark chapter 3, verse 29. I'll read verse 28 to put this in context. Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, all their sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and their blasphemies, wheresoever they shall blaspheme. But whosoever shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. An eternal sin? Sinning unto death, I think, is equivalent to a sin which is eternal in its consequences and character. The eternal sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, in this particular setting, we see exactly what blaspheming the Holy Spirit amounts to. Jesus has been casting out demons, and his opponents attribute that to the power of Satan. And Jesus says that in so doing, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit's work. The reason for this, we could get into a lengthy description of any of these, but passages, but I believe the reason for that is that there is clear evidence that Jesus is working in the power of God's Spirit. And against that clear evidence, his opponents show hardened hostility to the truth. They are going to repudiate Jesus no matter what. And so even if it's so obvious, in fact, it, philosophically it doesn't even make any sense to say he does it by Satan because Jesus says then Satan's house is divided against itself. It doesn't make sense to say that. But, but even um, far worse than the fact that it doesn't make sense is that it shows that you have a heart that is hardened against the truth. There has been clear evidence of blessing here, clear evidence of the work of God, and you call it satanic. And that will never be forgiven. That is an eternal sin, the unforgivable sin. And so we learn from other passages in the New Testament that it is possible for someone who is within the community of faith, someone who is a member of the church, as we might put it, to harden their heart against the truth and to commit a sin that will never be forgiven. Remember that the kind of sin we're talking about is not a sin of ignorance. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 2, we read words that are helpful, and then I want to contrast that with Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 5, 2 says, 
who can bear gently with the ignorant and erring, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. It's one thing to sin in ignorance. You may remember how Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13 that uh, he was a terrible sinner, but God forgives him because he sinned in ignorance. It isn't as though he was fully convinced of the truth of the gospel, that he was fully committed to the, to the veracity and the reality of the Christian church, and then he said, I don't care. Even if God is for them, I'm going to be against it. I blaspheme this and I will oppose it. Paul says, that isn't the way I sinned against the church. It was a terrible sin. I was a terrible sinner, the chief of sinners, but I sinned in ignorance. Now, I, I want to say that especially to those of you who have ever been tormented with the thought that you may have committed the unforgivable sin. When people um, come and ask, what can they do to, to be assured that they've not committed the unforgivable sin, I'm not being playful when I do this. There's a real reason for this. I sometimes ask, well, what is the unforgivable sin? Well, I'm not sure, but I think I might have committed it. But you see, you can't have committed the unforgivable sin if you don't even know what it is. Because the unforgivable sin is not a sin of ignorance, as we've just seen. Turn to Hebrews 10.26, by contrast. Again, talking of apostasy, the author of Hebrews speaks of people in this way. He says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. And there are two things about that description that you have to hold on to. First of all, it's deliberate. It's willful. This is not incidental. It's not something you backed into. It's not something you accidentally did. And secondly, it's knowledgeable. It's a sin against the light. It's not a sin in ignorance. It's not a sin in darkness. It's not a sin that you have no idea what you're doing. It's something that you very well know the character of. If we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Notice the knowledge of the truth and deliberate defiance of it. I'm sorry? That's right. But David did not have such a disposition of heart that he repudiated the Lord of the Covenant. He sinned against him. He grieved the Holy Spirit. He did something dreadfully wrong. But that is different from saying, I know who God is. I know what the way of salvation is. I know the truth of the gospel. And I utterly repudiate it anyway. I want nothing to do with it. The book of Hebrews envisions people who deliberately turn against what they know to be true. So, in a sense, I guess what, I, what I'm getting at is it's one thing to, to live a life inconsistent with your profession of faith. David's was a great inconsistency, a grievous inconsistency. It's another thing. Uh, you see, when you're inconsistent, you're able to say you're, you've, you've been inconsistent, right? But the apostate's not being inconsistent. He's repudiated. Understand the difference? Let's say uh, you come to me and you say, Pastor, well, you did something which I don't think, you know, you preach, you told us we shouldn't do that sort of thing. And, I, and, and if I say, yes, I know, I, I'm weak and sinful and I'm inconsistent with my own preaching, you know, woe is me for that, I hope God will forgive me. That doesn't show that I've turned against my preaching. It does show that I'm inconsistent with my preaching. But the apostate isn't saying, oh, I know what I'm doing is inconsistent with what I said. The apostate says, I once said this, and I don't believe it anymore. 
I don't follow it anymore. I will not live this way anymore. I am going to turn deliberately against what has been said previously. So what we have to conclude from these biblical passages we've been studying is that, that, that not all within the Christian church belong truly to the Christian church. Not all within the Christian church are true believers. Look at Romans 9, 6. It's not exactly the same thing, but Paul's point is parallel. Romans 9, 6. For they are not all Israel that are of Israel. Paul looks at the Old Testament people of God and he said not everyone that was a member of that nation of Israel was Israel. He said, now come on Paul, you're contradicting yourself. Not really. What Paul is saying is there's a sense in which you're an outward member of the people of God and yet not an inward member of the people of God. Inwardly you're not right with God. And so you enjoy... In a sense, the experience of Old Testament Israel is a very clear explanation of what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Here are people who enjoyed the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They were enlightened from heaven. They had all of these blessings in their midst. They had no excuse for their turning against God, and yet they did. In fact, you know what they turned against God to the uttermost? when the Son of God came to them and demonstrated that he was truly the Son of God, full of grace and truth. And the Bible says he came into his own and his own received him not. On Palm Sunday, these people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as the Son of David and their Messiah. They sang Hosanna to him, which was a plea for salvation. It was a, it was a word of adoration. And yet on Friday morning they were saying, crucify him. In Hebrews 6 we read that there are those who have enjoyed uh, enlightenment and benefits so that they know the truth and they end up crucifying afresh the Son of God. What do you think the author of Hebrews is thinking of? Thinking of the, the history of Israel. He's thinking of those who crucified the Son of God. So we have to learn that not all Israel is Israel. Not all who are members of the Christian community are truly believers. And yet they look like them. For all outward appearances, they're just like you and me. If you and me are on the right side of that way. They appear to be as genuine a Christian as you might ask for. They profess repentance. They see all these benefits. They go along with everything. And then they turn against it. Turn to 1 John 2.19. Speaking of the many antichrists that have afflicted the church in that day and have left, John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, they all are not of us. Again, John's way of repeating himself in different, uh, putting in different ways. What he's getting at is, those who have defected from the Christian church went out from the church because though they were with the church, they were not of the church. 
They were in Israel, but not of Israel. Parable of the Sower. You'll find it in Mark's fourth chapter. We don't have time to read it tonight. But the parable of the sower tells us that the word of God, like seed, is cast out and falls on different kinds of ground. When it falls on good ground, it grows up and bears fruit, 60 and 100 fold, and so forth. But that parable also says that the seed goes out and falls on shallow ground sometimes, where there is no place for root to dig in. And I don't know if, if you're good enough for farmers to realize this, but that seed that falls on shallow ground will begin to grow and look just like the rest of the wheat for a while. And that's because as long as the development is on, let's say that the, I'm just making this up, I'm not sure how accurate it is horticulturally, but the, if the ground is two feet deep um, where it is shallow and it's ten feet deep where it is good ground, for as long as the seed is growing only to the depth of two feet of its roots, the good and the bad will look the same. It will start sprouting up. And then Jesus says, however, persecution comes, the sun comes out and withers it, and because it has no root, it dies. There are those who are in the Christian church that look like good wheat. In fact, they may very cheerfully make profession of faith, receive the gospel with joy, Jesus says, and yet they didn't really receive it. To outward appearances, they are Christians, but they do not persevere to the end. There is no deep root in them. And persecution or the temptations of the world or what have you draw them aside. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. This may be the most appalling of all of the indications in the New Testament that you can enjoy spiritual blessing and still not be a spiritual person. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That probably is the best explanation of what I'm getting at tonight. It's one thing to confess that Jesus is Lord, another thing to do the will of his Father. But let's read on. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by thy name and by thy name cast out demons, and by thy name do many mighty works and miracles. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now that's frightening, because the Bible indicates it's possible for you to engage in miraculous works and not be a Christian. It's possible for you to prophesy in God's name and not be a Christian. And that means that what I'm talking to you about right now applies just as much to preachers as it does to people in the pew. There are going to be some mighty, dynamic preachers who on the day of judgment will have Jesus say, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You don't belong to me. There are going to be people who cast out demons who will not prove to be Christians, Jesus says. Let's think of some examples here. Simon Magus, in Acts the 8th chapter. Simon was a sorcerer, remember? He, and when, when he was allegedly converted, that drew a lot of attention. People really thought a lot of that. 
And then when Simon saw the miracles being performed by the apostles, he went to them and offered them money that he might have that power as well. And Peter responded, what? To hell with you and your money, Simon. But by the way, that is literally what it said. I wish our translations were just that blunt. Into perdition with you and your money, Simon, because I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness. You are not saved. Despite being baptized, despite your profession, despite your following, 2 Timothy 4.10, one of the you know, status verses in the Bible, Paul speaks of Demas, who has turned against him because he loves this present world. You can do a, a, a study of Demas in the New Testament. That's not the only reference to him. Elsewhere, Demas is among those who send greetings through the inspired word of God to the churches. Demas is a co-worker with Paul, and Demas is commanded. Here is this person for all outward appearances to be a Christian. And yet we read later that he turned against the gospel as he loved his present world. And then, as we already know from um, the question previously, Judas. Judas was on the inner circle of the disciples. He was an apostle. If an apostle can apostatize, now how much more could a miracle worker or a preacher or a demon who is a fellow laborer with the apostles or you or me? The Bible holds out a very realistic threat and warning. Uh, I told you at the beginning that I do not appreciate the taking lightly the warning found in Hebrews chapter 6 saying, well, it's just hypothetical. No, the author's talking about something very real and very possible. He's saying it is possible that you have become a member of the Christian community and you have all the outward benefits of it and yet you will turn against it. And if you do, he says, you will never, ever be renewed to repentance. There is a kind of repudiation, deliberate repudiation of the truth and turning against the Savior which cannot be remedied. And we are supposed to stand in fear and trembling of that. Why? Because every day we are to make our calling and our election sure. We are not to rest upon our laurels, as it were, saying, well, God has saved me, and that means I don't have to worry about anything. The Bible calls us to persevere in the Christian life. The Bible calls us to take these things very seriously, not to just sit back and be passive. And now, having said that, I don't want to indicate me without pointing out that the author of Hebrews is the best one to expound how those who are truly saved need not worry, though, that that's going to happen to them. And he does it in the very same chapter, in the very same chapter, where all this threat is found. Because would you notice what he goes on to say in verse 9, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and the love which you showed toward his name, and that ye ministered unto the saints, and still do minister. And we desire that each one of you may now show the same diligence under the fullness of hope, even to the end, that you be not sluggish, but imitators of them who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. So he calls them to persevere. God is not unmindful of your previous work. For when God made promise to Abraham, since he could swear by none greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely, in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thee. 
And thus, having patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For when men swear by the greater, and in every dispute of theirs, the oath is final for consummation, wherein God being minded to show more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, interposed with an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, which we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and entering into that which is within the veil, whither as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What the author says is, remember how God interposed with an oath after he promised Abraham salvation? And so there are two now, two immutable things. First, it's impossible for God to lie. So God, when he promises that he will save Abraham, cannot lie, Abraham will be saved. But then God added something to that. He interposed with an oath. An oath is um, a word of self-malediction, if I can put it briefly. Self-malediction means to call a curse upon yourself if you don't do something. Okay, um... We have very trivial oaths in our day, but uh, I tell you, if if, if I don't invite you to the party, I'll be a monkey's uncle. That's a way of saying, let me become a monkey's uncle if I don't keep my word to you, right? That's a trivial oath. God, when he made an oath, called for Abraham to separate sacrificial animals in half. And the oath was to this effect, let this happen to me, what has happened to the animals if I don't keep my word to you. Let the judgment of God come upon God himself if he will not save Abraham. And so two immutable things. And so in the very same chapter where you have this threat, don't fall away, you also have the strongest passage in all the New Testament that those to whom God promises salvation, he will see to it that they inherit it. In Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Be confident of this. Because God's work, whether it's in creation or recreation, God's work, whether in creation or redemption, whether he intends to bless or he intends to judge, God's work can never fail, just because it is God's work. God's work must always accomplish its purpose. And if God has started the good work of salvation in you, he will see it to perfection. So Philippians 1.6 assures us. Look at 1 Peter 1.5. Who by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are guarded by God through faith so that that final salvation will be ours. 2 Timothy 2.19. Howbeit the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his. And let every one that names the name of the Lord depart from unrighteousness. 
beautiful balance in that passage. Here's the firm foundation of God. God knows who belongs to him. His seal is upon them, and they'll never be lost. And yet the author is going to say, but let everyone who names his name depart from unrighteousness. Live a life that is consistent with the fact that you are a Christian. If you belong to God, he will never let you go. John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All who come to me, I will by no means cast out. And John 10, verse 28, perhaps a verse you know best in this regard, Jesus says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. The Bible teaches then two truths. On the one hand, those in whom God is genuinely doing a work of redemption, those who are truly God will never be lost. He will never let them go. No one will ever snatch them out of his hand. His seal is upon them. He will perfect his work into the day of redemption and guard them through faith into the day of salvation. God's work will not fail. And if God is doing a saving work in us, we have full assurance that he will save us. Hebrews 6 goes on to say that. God is interposed with an oath. God says, let me be damned before you will be lost if you belong to me. That's one of the truths. And I'm afraid, however, that if we focus on that and forget the other, that that truth will prove to be a false hope. The other is that those who, in whom the work of God is being done must demonstrate their Christian faith and live consistently in terms of it, not fall back under tradition. They must not take it for granted. They must not assume that because they're members of the Christian church, they automatically are saved. The way I put it at the very beginning this evening is that not all who profess to be Christians are necessarily Christians. So you profess to be a Christian, there are certain outward evidences of the fact that you are a Christian. The Bible says make your calling and election sure. Press on. Don't fall back. Don't take this for granted. Don't be passive. Persevere to the end. Because if you don't persevere to the end, then what will... Uh, what will be demonstrated is that you were like the seed that fell on shallow ground. It began to grow up and look like every other piece of good, legitimate wheat that was growing, but it wasn't to be. You didn't have root. You died out. Hebrews tells us we have to persevere to the end. We also have to realize that our perseverance is only made possible by the grace of God in our lives. So I take the threat of Hebrews 6 very seriously. And it's one which I try to hold out before my congregation. And when people are under church discipline or being counseled, it's something that has to be mentioned from time to time. You may very well be demonstrating that you're a hypocrite. And if you are, if you are openly repudiating what you know to be true and turning against the blessing of having been in the sphere of the Christian church, then it would be impossible to renew your repentance. Don't let that happen. So what does that mean? It means every day turn from your sin. Every day make your calling and election sure. Take the threat seriously. But I wouldn't ever lead you to think that this means God can start doing something to save you and then God's work will be thwarted. Now if God is working in you to save you, he will see it through. 
But if he sees it through, he's going to do it by you persevering to the end in his strength and power. Those complementary truths, um, understandable, may not be as easy as Arminianism or a once saved, always saved idea, but it seems to me that it makes perfectly good sense. God's going to work through you to save you to the uttermost. That means you're going to live as though you're saved to the uttermost. I didn't look forward to teaching tonight's lesson. It's a tough one. But uh, let me see if you have any questions before we stop tonight. Thank you. 